Welcome to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm Umbreen Khan. This week, my guest is columnist, playwright, and dad, Wajahit Ali. For 20 years since 9-11, when he was a member of the Muslim Student Association at UC Berkeley, Ali has been stepping into the public arena to try to reshape the narrative when it comes to immigrants and Muslims. From the theater stage where he presented his play Domestic Crusaders to many cable news appearances to social media, Ali has been trying to tell the story about what it means to be American and so much more. Born to two Pakistani immigrants, Ali grew up in a multi-generational home in one of the most diverse communities in the country, Fremont, California. I first met Ali in 2011 when he presented findings for a research report on Islamophobia that he co-authored for the liberal-leaning Center for American Progress. Fear.inc documented the rise of a network of organizations, funders, and leaders working to keep America afraid of Muslims and Islam. The topic was not new to me, but what stood out at that briefing was Ali's approach. He made me laugh. His quick wit and self-deprecating humor is disarming. Muslims are stuck in the middle. We're like the unwanted stepchild who kind of just wants in and wants to bring in our falafel and halal meat to the barbecue. Uh, But the Christians don't want us, even though they're for religious liberties, but not for our religious liberties. And the left kind of wants us, but doesn't want us if we're too Muslim-y. Ali makes it easy. He connects the dots between policy and its impact on everyday people, including his family. In 2019, he used every platform he could to appeal for an organ donor for his daughter, who was diagnosed with stage 4 liver cancer. The appeals led to an overwhelming response, including from those who deeply disagreed with Ali's politics. Eventually, they found a donor, and that person's liver saved his daughter's life. Ali tells that story and many more in his first book, Go Back to Where You Came From, and other helpful recommendations on how to become American. It's an intimate memoir that mixes personal events with historical context and humor. And it reads much like a conversation with Ali himself. He understands that numbers numb, unless you have a story to tell. And he does. Our conversation begins with both humor and some truth-telling about how we're feeling as we begin year three of the pandemic. It's this insane, stupid, like, snowstorm in in, uh, Virginia, which I hate because I'm a Californian. Then (laughs) it was three weeks. They were supposed to be off for two weeks for um, uh, Christmas. They both virtual school. It's been three weeks, and my kids decided not to sleep. So they sleep like at midnight every day. And I have a book coming out in 14 days. And I feel like I feel like I got nuzzered. I feel like because I'm broke. I'm like broken. I'm like, you know what? Everything that was supposed to go right went wrong. And I'm supposed to hustle and like sell the book. And I'm just I'm you know what I love. It's fine. I think that your honesty about feeling burned out right now is so refreshing because it's I think everyone's feeling it. I, I think it's I think it is like this universal sense of. We're back here and it's there's so much confusion at the school level. There's confusion about how to think about 
uh, what's best for the kids. And then not to mention like all the stuff that goes on with like day to day living and life. It's it's I think there's just I think a lot of people who I thought were really holding it together over the last two years are starting to show or feel rather like cracks. So yeah, you're not yeah, alone. But, you're not alone. Yeah, because we're humans, right? Like our body has a right over us. Our mind has a right over us. And then like you with Omicron, it's one of those situations where like even when I did everything right, it still didn't matter because now there's people who are like drinking urine instead of taking the vaccine. <laughs> and then like Herschel Walker might run for like win an office, a football yeah. player who's now promoting like mist, this green mist. And I'm like, is that like evaporated urine? Like what is what's happening? And then you're just like, Schools shut down, but after a while, it just takes like a, there's like an attrition. Like I talked to my wife because like we're both relatively calm people who I think have a strong spiritual, emotional center. We could take a lot. And she's like, I'm so tired. Yeah. Like, am I, am I, am I broken? And I'm like, I think we need sleep. I'm like sleep. <laughs> Maybe we just sleep. need sleep. <laughs> sleep is kind of magic. I mean, sleep is, is a, a magic remedy for so many things, but it, you know, the, the idea that you're feeling this sense of brokenness, but you look back at your own constitution, like all the different places where you get support, whether it's from your friends or from your faith tradition or from the very positive news that you have in your life. And I know that you are one to focus on gratitude as well, but sometimes that's not enough. Like sometimes we just have to say, I'm really tired of this and i think that there's a lot of that happening no that, that that exactly right there has there just has to be a space where you can vent and yeah. you don't want anyone to give you solutions and you don't want a pep talk you just want to like vent to the universe and i remember no one expects me to vent like they always expect me to like solve problems and i think it's one of those situations when, when you have a certain type of personality people are like surprised that you're venting and i'm like i don't need a lesson from you i need a lecture i don't need like a, a, a pep talk I just right. need you to listen, listen to me rant for like four minutes. All right, now I feel better. I'm going to go have chai. Thank you. <laughs> you use humor. You use humor in a way that is incredibly disarming, but also gets folks to pay attention to serious issues. And I um, I want to get to your book for a second. Now, the last time listeners heard you on the program, I, I believe you were on a roundtable in which you were providing some perspective and reaction to what then President Donald Trump was doing, one of the many things he was doing um, as it related to the treatment of, of immigrants and refugees at the border. Fast forward, a lot has happened to you and you have this new book coming out and, I, and I'm excited to talk to you about it. No, thank you for ha having me on. The book is called Go Back to Where You Came From and Other Helpful Recommendations <laughs> on How to Become American. And, so, and, and, so where did that title come from? I mean, yeah. I, I opened up the book. I, this is what I thought when I looked at that. I thought, where, where, where did this title come from? And then I open up the book and, and I'm not going to spoil it for those who will read it. But you draw that from kind of a dark place. Tell me about why you decided to go with that title. Yeah. So, I mean, to connect the dots, right, when Trump rose, I think many of us, especially people of color, communities of color, who have experienced both the American nightmare and the American dream, we tried to warn the rest of America that what Trumpism was all about, how it was not a new phenomenon, but it was like a radicalized uh, virus that has always infected America, right? Where so many of us, even though we were born and raised in this country, our citizenship and loyalty is held as suspect, especially for those who are Muslim or look Muslim. -y. For many of us, it was after the 9-11 uh, terror attacks, the war on terror. And lo and behold, Donald Trump, I think this was after we talked, his crowd chanted, send her back, send her back, send her back. And that was after Donald Trump had told four congresswomen of color to go back and fix your own country. All these women, by the way, 
are U.S. congresswomen and U.S. citizens. But that's a common refrain uh, that those who are not seen as white, which is a synonym for American mainstream Rust Belt, right? We are often told to go back. You don't belong here. And so how do you love a country that oftentimes doesn't love you back? And so this book was kind of an elegy for the rest of us. Mm. Those of us who don't get to be the protagonists, those of us who sometimes are the scapegoats, the goofy sidekicks, the antagonists who are oftentimes completely excised from the narrative. And I think the title reflects both my personality, but also I think the the humor, the absurdity, and also the pain. Uh, So like, go back to where you come from. Boom, gut punch. You get hit with something ugly. And then the American can-do spirit. And other helpful recommendations. You too can be American, <laughs> right? And and I, that type of tone between pain and humor, absurdity and sadness reflects life, I think, right? Just life in general. And also the life of many Americans who have experienced both the dream and the nightmare, even though they're Americans, but still not seen as Americans by their fellow countrymen. When you talk about using humor and finding a way to kind of open the door for conversation with people who don't share your background or don't share your experience. Um, what do you what do you find happens when you get personal? Because you get really personal in this in this elegy, as you describe it. Yeah. So humor doesn't mask pain. Not for me. Uh, I think humor reflects it. It's able to uh, distill it. It's able to sweeten the bitter medicine. Uh, you're able to explain it sometimes. Right. Uh, some people laugh. Some people cry. I'm not one to cry. So I think when life gives you lemon, <laughs> you make lemonade achar, which is a, a South Asian <laughs> yeah, very, relish. Very good. Very good. Yeah, stuff there. Delicious. And then, you know, I, you can you can sometimes laugh and there could be a catharsis, a release. You know, you often see people who have suffered, communities who have suffered, Jews, uh, Italians, Irish Catholic, African-Americans. There's a reason, I think, why they turn to art and storytelling and joy. It's a way to process the pain and make sense of it, right? And still find a way to carry forward and live forward and have you kind of develop a dark sense of humor with humor. Uh, I see, and I say this in the book, if, if used wisely and strategically, it can also help you reach out and connect to people who otherwise will shut you down. The science shows that when people laugh, right, they, they feel better. Endorphins are released and they become more open to otherwise hostile ideas, politically, culturally, religiously, that they would not entertain. Right. And so you can use humor as a Trojan horse to introduce some perspectives, ideas that another person through, say, a stern lecture or like a debate or through policy points would just immediately shut off because people like being entertained. And I think humor then sometimes also allows us to kind of reflect upon the absurdities of life. And, you know, when you get them laughing, you can also then punch them in the gut. (laughs) <laughs> with some with some drama and some truth and some and bluntness get, and, and get some attention there. Tell us a little bit about your evolution to this point, because you share your story in the book. But for listeners to understand how you come to being able to make fun of some of the things that are so painful that feel like a punch to the gut. You know, it's all about personality. I think, you know, growing up, I was the awkward, shy, fat kid who wore husky pants. And anyone who knows husky pants, I just triggered you. I'm so sorry. Like You, you just you, did, by the way. You triggered me. I just want you to know I was one of those kids. I, in oh, fact, you were there one was, of me. There, one, there was one of us. There, there was, one uh, of listen, us. I had uh, executive bifocals. I barely oh. fit into the husky pants. And oh, I had no. a myriad of 
health issues. So yeah, man, that first chapter was hard. Yeah, yeah, because you so you were like me. You were like my brown sister from another mother, right? Like yes, I was yes. sick, a decade shy, older, but yes, yes, a token brown kid, like very shy. You know, like like when whenever I remember, like when you got you, for those of you who are old enough, remember when there was school time, it was lunchtime. They used to play sports, and everyone would say heads up, and everyone would look heads up because there, like someone was warning you that there was an errant ball in the air and it might fall on you. I would be the last one I'd be like, huh? And the ball would fall on my face. So that was me. I was always that guy. Uh, and the boosh. And so, um, you know, as a shy fat kid, and this was the 80s, where you you remember like the 80s. Oh, yeah. There was no oh, yeah. body positivity. No, there was no, there was no body positivity. There was, there was none of there that. Was no there was no Lizzo. There was no, no Lizzo. Yeah. All right. There was just like, you're normal or you're fat. You're normal or you're the freak. Every day for the fat kid was World War Three. Every day. And so, you know, so it, it traumatized a lot of people. And I kind of say that, you know, I was serious about that. Like when people talk about husky pants, I used to wear husky pants. When I mentioned husky pants in, 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 in speeches, at the end of every speech, I swear to you, at the end of every speech, there's always at least one person. When everyone's gone, they come up to me, they look over their shoulders and they go, I also used to wear husky pants. And then they like run away. And so, you know, it's one of those situations where I think for humor for me was not necessarily reactionary. It was always proactive in the sense that I always enjoyed making my friends laugh. And I discovered my superpower. In fact, in fact the first tip for in the book, for those of you who want to be, become American, is create your own superhero narrative, right? And in order to create your own superhero narrative and story, you need a superpower that you have to discover. And I discovered in fifth grade when I was a shy, fat, 10-year-old kid in Miss Peterson's fifth grade class is I can tell a good story. She asked me to write a one-page short story. I ended up writing a 10-page creative short story. Mm. And then she liked it so much, she gave me an A+++++. Plus, 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 plus. And then she said, get up in front of the homeroom, wajahat, and read the story. And I'm like, I'm fat. Please don't make me. She goes, shut up, fatty. Go and talk. <laughs> and then I'm like, no. And then I did it. And you have to realize, and you, you know this, that to get up as a young shy kid, but also the fat kid in front it's of your hard. bullies, it's hard. But I had them. I told, I read the story and I had them. They laughed at all the right parts. And at the end, they applauded. And then she said, you have to recite the story in, in front of the upcoming talent show for fifth graders, sixth graders, and seventh graders, the upperclassmen. And I did that and I had them. And that's when I realized I might have a superpower. And, you know, long story short, you know, you develop it, you hone into a skill. And so in eighth grade, I won the most funny award and then in <laughs> high school, we did improv comedy. And in college, I did sketch comedy troops. So it was always there, Amreen. It was always there. And even when you said with Fear, Inc., the report I did on the Islamophobia Network, right, which is about really terrible, painful hate, bigotry, yeah. racism. When I used to give speeches, I always used humor. I still do. And people don't expect that, but it lets the medicine go down easier. It allows for catharsis. And it also allows you to show the absurdity of racism and bigotry. My conversation with playwright, commentator, and author Wajahat Ali continues after the break. Stay with us. You're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. We'll be right back. Hi, friends. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of our community. I don't know if you know this, but we are on the air all the way from Richmond, Virginia to Ketchikan, Alaska, and in so many places in between. 
We're a national show, and we are a small and mighty team committed to bringing you stories and sounds from around the world that convey not only the diversity and the pluralism of our country, but the beliefs that are shaping our world, our politics, our culture, and the ideas that sustain us and inspire us to think about where we are going. And that brings me to this question. If you value us, if you enjoy listening and appreciate what you're hearing, I want to ask you to take a moment to consider becoming a sustaining member of Interfaith Voices or make a one-time donation at interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. That's interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. Thank you. And let's get back to the show. Welcome back to Inspired from Interfaith Voices. I'm Umbreen Khan. This week, my guest is playwright, commentator, and author Wajahid Ali. On January 25th, his first book, Go Back to Where You Came From, hits bookshelves. It's a memoir that reads like both a coming-of-age immigrant story and a hopeful manifesto for the next generation. But it's not all glowing. Ali takes on hypocrisy that he sees in his own communities. You know, one thing that I found in your book is that you don't spare um, bases or rather South Asians for non Desi listeners, uh, Desi is that term that we use to describe each other in the South Asian community. I was struck um, how you, in a comical but serious way, introduced this idea of white adjacency and this desire to uh, not just assimilate, but but ha- tap into that power and all these different things that people do. I am curious, who did you see as the primary audience for this book? Oh, that's interesting. Uh, you know, I have always written for diverse global audiences. You know, I've always said that our, I write stories by us for everyone, by us culturally specific tales, uh, but for a global audience. And oftentimes, I'm glad you asked that question, because when when it's up to us ethnic storytellers, we get asked and told literally, how will your ethnic story appeal to the mainstream? Translation, hey, darky, will white people like your story? Um, there's no white folks in it. And what I have found out is that if you have a culturally specific tale with all the merch and the masala and the spices and the, and the, and the achar, it resonates. It's more real. And I have seen throughout my career that there are people from different ethnicities, religions, and different countries who respond to my culturally specific stories, because in that cultural specificity, there are some universal truths. If that makes sense, right? Sure. If you're talking about family, relationship, marriage, when it comes to the South Asian perspective, because my family is originally from Pakistan, they came here as immigrants after the 1965 Act, Immigration Nationality Act. That's the one perspective that I know. But I was just having a conversation with a, a, a son of Jamaican immigrants who read the book. And he goes, bro, the stuff that you have in there, it's like talking about my parents, not mm. tit for tat. Obviously, uh, it's not like uh, my job is not to make sure that my story is relatable to everyone. It's impossible. But he saw so many similarities. And when you're talking about whiteness or being asymptotic to whiteness or white adjacent, so many of us, if you ask our parents, right, our parents' generation, none of them are going to say, oh, yes, I came here and chose whiteness. They're like, what are you talking about? But I always joke that 
Imagine you come to this country. It's 1966. You're from Pakistan. You you have shalwar kameez and kurta, and you quickly ditch those for uh, bell bottoms and hippie hair. As your dad did, I I think, yeah, yeah. You have brown skin. There's no other brown folks. You have the quote-unquote goofy accent. You're away from your mom. You have no community, right? What are you trying to do? You're just trying to survive. You're trying to fit in. So you survey the American landscape. Who has power? Who's in power? Who's on the billboards? Who's the hero? Who does everyone like? These blonde white folks. Who does everyone hate? (laughs) Do you see a racial reckoning within the Desi community? Yes, I've seen two in my lifetime now. I've seen two fissure points, right? And this is not to say all Desi communities. Some Desi communities were super woke. It's if that's still a word that the kids use, which unfortunately has been <laughs> weaponized and destroyed uh, as like all good words have been like fleek and everything else by, by America. But, you know, so, like, like some communities were in a multiracial democracy in certain, uh, you know, neighborhoods. They, they were far advanced. But I think it's fair to say, and you and I, I think, can live to this and testify to this, that many of our parents of that generation were not aware right? They, they just, they chased success and whiteness. And it was 9-11 that the, the two towers fell thanks to 19 foreign hijackers who, who brought down the towers that killed 3,000 people, including Muslims and South Asians. And overnight, that generation, especially my father's generation, who thought that they had achieved the American dream, overnight, they were violently reminded this country turns on you on a dime. That was one. For others, who were like, no, 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 this country will still like us. No, 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 they elected Obama. Oh, you know, look, it's gotten better. The election of Donald Trump and the further radicalization of the Republican Party, where at least I always joke that if George W. Bush, whose presidency was terrible, Muslims hated his presidency, so did most Americans. But if George W. Bush was to run for Republican president in 2024, you know what would happen, Ambreen? Republicans would reject him for being a Muslim lover. Yeah, well... (laughs) I mean, among, he said, among other things, yeah, yeah, yeah but that's yeah. you know, all seriousness because at least he said some nice words. Remember the speech he gave? It was a good. And speech. he went to a mosque. I mean, he and went. He went, in, he went. I remember the day he took off his shoes and he, you know, walked into a mosque. It was a, it was a very big deal um, in the community. And I remember the reception that he got when he did that and the debate that ensued on how to perceive his gesture, how to perceive and take his gesture along with his. Uh, policy decisions and his his practices. The Republican Party has changed so radically in the in the last thirty years. I remember which I had when Muslim Americans were evenly split in their affiliation uh, between the parties. There there was an equal uh, split between Republican and uh, Democratic identities among the American Muslims back when it was being tracked. Uh, even, uh, obviously, a smaller minority than they than the American right. Muslim community is today. But it, so much has changed. Your book comes out at an interesting time. You offer a memoir. You offer a point of view. And you're one who has invited a lot of what I want to call rage and anger. I mean, you you get a lot of vitriol directed at you. Um, as the country has become more divided, do you find that the more you speak out, the more you provoke? Are you ever worried um, by the level of vitriol that gets directed at you? My my parents get worried uh, in, in a way that they were never worried before because they read some of this stuff and they see what's happening with the, the mainstreaming of radicalization and weaponization of predominantly, not exclusively right, the, the right wing, uh, January 6th violent insurrection, the Oath Keepers, Proud Boys, right? The difference is, is we've always gotten this hate ever since 9-11. 
I used to be a part of the Muslim Student Association and when the two towers uh, were brought down by the terrorists. I was a 20-year-old, about to turn 21, a senior at UC Berkeley, and I was also a member of the Muslim Student Association. My roommate, Essen, put my email as the, the, the liaison. So guess who got all the wonderful hate mail mm. uh, 20 years ago? But, and, and you know, every time I've written something you know, in my 20s, 2007, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, always you get these ugly emails, but at least they were anonymous. The difference now is that they're no longer anonymous, right? People proudly and openly just share their names. And I have seen something that the more I speak out and the more I push back and the more I use humor, the more angry they get, the more upset they get, which is what I always knew would happen, right? Because what is more threatening, a person who stays quiet or a person who pushes back? If a person who pushes back, like, who is this darkie? How dare he speak up? And, and they're more threatened by a, a person who is educated, who can speak English, who can be funny, who can debate them, who can outright them, who can be their equal, if not better. That's the person, Amri, who is very threatening. The caricature is not threatening because like a caricature is just someone you can mock and ridicule, right? They're like, it becomes a poster boy, a scapegoat. But if you can beat them at their own game in their own institutions at their own level, that's the threat. And I feel like in the last year or so, that type of target on my back and that type of focus is because they see me as a threat. So it's like simultaneously a compliment, but also like, kind well, of like also a dangerous compliment. A danger. It's also coming at a time when, I mean, you also have a louder megaphone. I mean, you, you're, you have more listeners, more individuals following you than, you know, you've probably ever had. So your platform is larger. Your platform and your reach is, is global. As you've said, I, you talk about your parents. You're also a parent. You have three beautiful kids. You've gone through a lot as a dad. Um, how how has all of this shaped your you know parenting and the way that you approach parenting? Yeah, that's you know I think we have three kids, and I think any parent who's listening our constitution the way we just built is protector. We become mama bear and and papa bear, and we have to protect our kids. It's all about security, right? It, it, it like a light bulb goes off, and you just shift, um, and you're like, how do I protect my kids? And and I think it's one of the situations my where my wife and I um, don't put our heads in the sand. We're not pie in the sky type folks. We acknowledge and confront the challenges that we have head on. And so I, I said this in the book, and I mean this, like I think about what's happening in the world, climate change, uh, rise of white supremacy, the end of democracy, Islamophobia, right? Genocide. Boy, happening. after hearing those headlines, everyone wants to go right back to bed. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I haven't even talked about the pandemic and the I mean, pandemic. You yeah, you haven't even mentioned that. And so, you, you know, I think sometimes like, all right, what's my role? I'm 41. What's my role? Uh, am I Hodor from Game of Thrones? Is my job just to use my body? and sacrifice myself to hold the demons at bay to give that future generation, my kids' generation, enough time to escape. That's one option. The other option is am I janitor? Like, is my job to use the rest of my life, however long I live, to clean up the crap so they have some living space, right? Mm -hmm. Or three, can I dare dream be a gardener and plant a seed? And maybe if we're lucky, you know, live long enough that before my time's up that, you know, it grows and I can enjoy the shade and my kids and I can enjoy the fruit. And so that's the type of approach I take. I think I have to do all three. I think our generation has to do all three. We have to bunker down and, and, and not necessarily martyr ourselves, but realize that they're demons at bay. We have to fight and we have to also clean up some crap. And then at the same time, what I always 
and this is the hardest part, is the hope part. Because with what I just mentioned, pandemic, climate change, rising white supremacy, end of democracy, right? Income inequality. People are like, what's the point? What's the point? I'm going to tap out and watch some Netflix. But I feel like the opposite of hope is also cynicism and apathy. And it means just completely being a spectator in life. And I refuse to do that. I feel like if you throw yourself in the ring, and, I, and the book charts this, and I hope the book has um, earned hope. I don't want to say hope, but earned hope. What does that mean? What does that because mean? Because hope, hope in, in the sense of a narrative, of a Hollywood narrative, is you put a bow tie at the end and you make people feel better. And it's completely fake and unearned and not realistic. But it gives you a quick smile on the face. But by the time you leave the theater and go to the your car, you're like... That's like cotton candy. That, that it, it tasted sweet, but meh, artificial. Earned hope is it's like faith. Uh, you need to experience it. You need to go through the muck to come out, you know, grateful at the other end, right? You need you need to experience pain a little bit. You need to experience some of the challenges, and then you also need to see something tangible, like I survived. Ah, there's some fruits to my labor. Oh, look, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. Oh, I didn't die. Oh, I got married. Oh, my kid turned out okay. Oh, I you know I got that job. Oh, we didn't we didn't destroy each other during the pandemic. Oh, workers got rights. Do you see what I'm saying? Like faith has to be tangible, and that hope just can't be like oh everything will be fine. Just say inshallah, God willing. <laughs> Let's have some cheese. That'll give me gas because I'm lactose intolerant. No, it has to be like here are the challenges. Here's the work. Here are the bruises and the scars. But here are also some wins. And that's the proof that sometimes hope mixed with work can actually provide those fruits that we need. Because in the absence of that, it's apathy and cynicism and despair. And what's the point, right? We just tap out. And I refuse to give my children that narrative, that legacy. And I refuse to tell them that they'll be victims. I hope that you made sense. Yeah, it, it, you dedicate the book to your kids and to the next generation. Do you, do you think that they'll appreciate what you're doing? Do you th do they have an appreciation for what you're doing right now? Do they have some understanding of the role that you play? I mean, my kids are seven, five, and two. So right now they love me and like me. And, and, <laughs> and like they play a lot of Legos, yeah. Play Legos, play video <laughs> games, run around, wrestle, like forts. And like, plus, you know, we've been uh, under lockdown for three years because my daughter had cancer right before the uh, uh, pandemic. So like, you know, for three years I've been with them. So right now I think they like me. But everyone's telling me like in four years, five years, like my Watch kids out. are going to hate me. Yeah. And then and then they're like, shut up, dad. Why do old people smell? Why are you alive? Go die. So I'm just like, for right now, this is like the sweet spot where they know what I do. My son does something hilarious. He, uh, when, I, when I go on TV, he like gets up on the couch and he, and he just takes up his finger and he starts talking and just starts saying like nonsense. And he goes, look, I like what Baba does. I'm just speaking to people. And I'm like, all right. I'm like, do you think it's cool? Yeah, yeah, it's cool. I'm like, all right. Like one tear of pride just comes down my... Because I know well, in five years, it could be like, dad's lame. Or, or would you want your kids, what if they decide, what if one of the three decides they want to follow in the footsteps and become a, you know, a public uh, voice, an activist, uh talking about injustice and challenging the haters i'll say how would you feel i'll say if you want to live in this house you have to go become a doctor <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> do you want to live you like yeah, air yeah, 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 no yeah, i'm kidding i'm kidding yeah. no my wife and i are one of those folks that like you know uh, if they're good at it and they work hard at it and they have the passion for it and they have the joy for it then who am i to say you know, look at me I, you know, I left law. I mean, you left the law. <laughs> yeah, I left I left law. I went to Berkeley, then I went to UC Davis. I'm a licensed attorney. I practiced law. And then I went and did this weird 
strange career where I'm still trying to figure out what I want to be when I grow up. So who am I to say anything? Mm. My wife can say that though. My wife's like a responsible South Asian adult who became a doctor. So my wife could be the one who'd be like, no, look at your father. Look at this freak I married. Do you want to be like this freak? And the kids are like, no, mama, we want to be like you. Everyone likes you. You know, it's interesting when you talk about your relationship um, with your wife, uh, Sarah, I'm struck by two things. The amount um, of personal detail that you share in the book. Was she on board with all of this? Yes, I gave the book before I published it to my wife and to my parents, because, you know, sometimes they say memoir is theft uh, because it's your story. But look how much power you have, right? When you put in other characters. So because the 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 book also has aspects of my parents' story and like my wife's story. I got their buy-in before publishing. Mm. I want to ask you about faith for a second. It's it's interlaced throughout, and and I think almost every conversation that I've had with you on air, you you do talk about your perspective being rooted as a Muslim, as a practicing Muslim. How does your faith fit into into your evolution? How has it evolved? since you've, you've taken on this new role that's evolved since 9-11? It's very interesting. You know, a few people who actually know me uh, say it's very interesting to them when people are surprised that I'm, like, religious or that, like, I have faith because some, so a lot of Muslims think I'm, like, some flaming lefty progressive atheist who apparently is, like, going to renounce God and is, like, uh, I don't know, like, eats babies at night. You know, like, mus- Muslims are, like, <laughs> You know, they, they, they think why do like, you think that is? Why do you think that is? Uh, why do you think that they come come away with that? Because in religious communities, as you know, very diverse, if you see, are seen as at least promoting a multicultural democracy or pluralism, right? Mm-hmm. If you're promoting women's, let's be honest, you want to have a blunt conversation. If you are fine with women's rights or promoting women's rights, and if you believe that you know gay people are human beings, <laughs> like you know, in America. Uh, you should have marriage equality. Those two issues by themselves, right? People think, look at this flaming liberal assimilationist kissing. That's what I got called yesterday, a liberal assimilationist. And I always laugh and people who know me laugh. They're like, if they only knew you, a married father of three married to one woman who's done Hajj, who prays, who eats only a Zabia and halal, right? Fast during Ramadan, has never drank alcohol, doesn't do drugs, and is basically like a Karachi uncle. Stuck in Virginia. Uh, but it's very amusing, right? So Muslims think I'm like this flaming lefty progressive. You think it's, it stems from your vocal support for communities and points of view that people describe as progressive. That, that, exactly. And I, and I always say, isn't it hypocritical for you to sit here and demand that everyone now fight for Muslim rights and against Islamophobia, but then you're like, F them blacks, F them Mexicans, F them gays, F them women. These women have too much. They need to be. You know, they need to go to the kitchen. Like you're a hypocrite. How do? How can anyone take you seriously? They can't. And so I think there's that disconnect where they think that just because you are advocating for people in this country to have a right to live with dignity and equality and security, that somehow you are compromising and forfeiting your otherwise traditional values. You're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm Umbreen Khan, and this week my guest is playwright, commentator, and author, Wajahid Ali. His first book, Go Back to Where You Came From, hits bookshelves on January 25th. That has at times criticized him for his progressive positions. 
and how he relates to a community that has at times criticized him for his policy positions. When you're responding to them, does your faith come into it? Do you describe your faith as the source for your positions? The, my, in in my, challenging there, because it sounds like what you're saying is that by virtue of your policy um, advocacy for human rights for all, for women's rights, which, um, you know, all of these different issues that you're describing, there is an Islamic case for advancing and supporting those issues. It can be rooted in faith. And I'm curious, do you ever find yourself making those types of arguments within the Muslim community among those who are critiquing you for your position and questioning? your your faith your integrity as a the funny thing is practice. is everything everything that fuels me if people know me is my faith i take it very seriously i'm just that guy i've always been muslimy right and even when i try to quit it i, I can't quit it <laughs> i can't leave it you know it's just it's a really interesting thing like even when what, I'm like, what do I'm you done, mean when you try to quit it did you have you tried to quit it like did you go through a period where you questioned and wondered when you had challenges within the muslim community i think just challenges in life right like like is there a god what type of god would do this like is it am i on the right path is islam the right religion is there like i think we all anyone who's a serious student of spirituality and religion, I think has to have these moments of crises and challenges and doubts so that your, your faith is tested and, and you, you don't just sit there as like a blind, thoughtless sheep, like you engage it, right? These are tough um, metaphysical and philosophical questions, right? Like, am I on the right path? What is the right path for me? What is the capital T truth? Um, you know, and I feel like oftentimes the people that you're mentioning who are critical of me don't engage in these type of conversations the messiness right they outsource it they go allah says so so that's it done that's a very weak way of living your life or walking in the footsteps of faith in my opinion i think that makes you a, a limited it, it puts the ceiling very low yeah. for how high or far you can go in, in knowing yourself and knowing your creator in my opinion number one number two to answer your question succinctly and to the point uh, of, of course is my faith that does it right like i don't sit there and go uh, I ha happen to have progressive politics, so I'm going to put my politics first and then my religion second. For me, it's just melded together. Mm. And so I say, in America, with this multicultural democracy, this laboratory, this rough draft, I need to have the right to worship, and you need to have the right to think it's all BS. But we have to be able to live together side by side with equality. That's the only way this is going to work. We have to keep expanding and stretching this country to accommodate all of us. It's the only way it'll work. And what I've seen with some individuals, political parties, movements, and also some religious folks within our communities, it's not a narrative of expansion, Amreen. It's a narrative of restriction, constriction. Expansion of them is terrifying, right? How, well, is if, that about if, power? Is that about power? And power, holding on to norms, power? traditions. If, if, if the center, if we expand, the center will not hold. All things will fall apart. My daughter will throw off the hijab. She'll get a tramp stamp tattoo. My son will change his gender. He'll wear a dress. Everyone's going to become gay. No one's going to be Muslim anymore. And we're going to go to hell. I, you know, you might, you might think oh, I'm I, joking. No, I, I, I don't think these are the conversations I, we've had. <laughs> like these well, are conversations listen. people have. I, I I am well aware. I, I am well aware. I I I think I think that the thing that I'm struck by what you're describing though is that your honesty about your own spiritual journey, your own process of questioning and finding your way forward. I'm curious, what were the touchstones for you in that process? I mean, there are obviously all these people who have come at you 
for various reasons, for all the things you've described. Tell me about what has been a constant touchstone for you whenever you've encountered a spiritual crisis. Yeah, that's that's a very good question. I think what happens with me is it gets to a point where I realize for me that life is better and has more meaning and has more purpose with God in it, right? And a life without God for me or a life without this, this faith is more empty. The reason I stick with it is because it ultimately inspires me to be a better person or else why would I do it, right? And it inspires me to be selfless, it inspires me more generous, it inspires me more forgiving. And when I go away from it, it's not that I'm a bad person. Uh, it's just I'm not as good as I can be. And, and it gives me, it, it fulfills me and it gives me meaning. And I, I mentioned this in the book. I talk about the uh, near-death experiences. I have two chapters called Die Hard in America and Die Hard 2, Die Harder in America. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, the near-death experience, and I'll quickly mention this, is that at the end, where I felt like it was time, the, you know, I, you do your prayers to God and I just having the faith that there was a loving God on the other side to uh, embrace me and accept me allowed my exit to be that much more sweet and easy. And if that's all it takes, right, if as faith makes this journey called life just a little bit sweeter and easier, then that's not bad. Like that's, that's a good crutch. I don't mind that crutch. I'd rather have that over like self-destructive tendencies, right? But in addition to that, I just feel like in those moments of extreme, just God, there was challenges. And I mentioned that in the book, I felt like I, I, I hate being a cliche here, but yeah, it wasn't, I drew upon my faith and the stories of the prophets and those who have faith. And, and uh, you know, it's one of those situations where God tests those, right? I felt like it, it, my narrative when I was going through deep challenges I wrote in the book was, and we, we shall test your metal, M-E-T-T-L-E. Uh, and I'm like, okay, uh, the absence of faith here would be despair. The absence of hope here will be apathy and cynicism. Other people have gone through worse. The prophets have gone through worse. Inshallah, I have some resolve. Inshallah, I believe God is loving and with me, and I will have sabr, patience. And throughout these challenges, I will also have gratitude. And let's see where this takes me. And for me, and I'm only speaking for myself, it took me out of some very lonely, dark places many times mm. in my life. Mm. Is there a particular story of a particular prophet that um, that is one that you keep close to you when you're going through a challenge? In the in the book, it was interesting. I mentioned this is that when I was going through like some severe challenges, there was a, a an uncle of mine, my mother's father's brother, Makbulana, apparently had the shining in our family, the sh- <laughs> or as they say in the Simpsons, the shinin. <laughs> and, uh, and you know, very spiritual person, very worldly person. If you met him and saw him, you wouldn't be able to tell. But like very, really deep, deep religious person who became paralyzed uh, at a young age and then devoted himself to like not just worldly knowledge and pursuits, but also spiritual pursuits, right? So he, t- he took a shining to me, if you will, when I was a young, young person. And when I was going through a lot of hardships, he, uh, he, he called me. I was in California. He was in London. And he said, uh, uh, I want to give you a gift. And I'm like, what's the gift? And he gave me this verse. From the Quran, this this verse, which is basically the story of Abraham, which is in the in the Old Testament as well, where they threw Abraham in the fire, and then God commanded the fire to be cool for Abraham. He said, "Oh, fire, be cool for Abraham." Right, but it's said in Arabic. So he said, "Just let me. I'm going to give you this verse and just recite this verse." So, 
in a strange way, I had that verse. Uh, I printed that verse out and I had attached it to my computer. And there was another verse that I liked uh, fr- uh, from chapter Muhammad, which was uh, in, in where God tells the prophet Muhammad, and we shall test your reported metal, right? Oh, ye who claim to have faith, we shall test your reported metal. So mm-hmm. I put that Ibrahim line up top and I put that metal, M-E-T-T-L-E metal line at the bottom. And for whatever reason, those two became my North Star during some very difficult times. Mm. As you raise your kids, what's the most important spiritual practice that you want to pass on? Uh, be kind. I think that's what my wife and I always say, like, be kind, you know, be, mm. be brave and be kind and be decent and generous to people. It's interesting that you mentioned that because oftentimes you might think, pray, uh, learn Arabic fast. This is not to say this is not important. These are very important rituals. Well, and you're describing those pillars of Islam that many parents try to inculcate in their kids, those five pillars. You reach to kindness. Why is that the, the, the practice that <sighs> resonates for you and your family? Because you could teach a dumb goat how to pray. <laughs> right? you, you could, I know a lot of terrible people who pray. I know a lot of cruel people who fast. I know a lot of bitter people who wear the hijab. I know a lot of petty people who have long beards. But to have a kind heart, that's, that's tough. That's a lifetime of cultivation, right? You, you can learn Arabic. Anyone who's listening right now, one month, you, I could teach you one of the uh, chapters of the Quran, right? Surah Fatiha. And you could be like, Alhamdulillah, Rabbil Alameen. I'm like, that's not bad. That's pretty good. Um, but to cultivate a kind heart, that, that is, you know, you, you're lucky if you know someone who's kind, right? People are nice. I'm not talking about nice guys. We're all nice. I'm talking about someone who's kind. Kind heart is empathetic. It is generous. It is soft. Uh, it helps people. So if they, with the world needs more kind people, and I feel like a kind heart it becomes much more receptive to being a spiritually aware heart, which allows someone to be a very successful Muslim, in my opinion. Mm. Wajahit, thank you so much. Now, your friends don't call you Wajahit. You point that out in the book. How do you say your name for someone who wants to to greet you um, formally? Your trisyllabic name. Pronounce it for us. Uh, uh, so if if you if you're my mother, uh, you will or my father, you will say Wajahat. It's like a katana. <laughs> uh, fast Wajahat. Uh, if you're, uh, I think, born and raised in America, you go Wajahat, uh, which is interesting. Or you could cut off the two syllables and just call me Waj. Or if you saw me wearing husky pants when I was seven, Waji. Oh, don't bring up those husky pants again. <laughs> <laughs> or, or if you want to mock me, Waja the Hut, which I thought was yeah, hilarious. Yeah. Uh, but there you go. Th- those are all yeah. the options. Now, I can't end an interview with you without asking you about why you love Star Wars so much. You, you are a huge Star Wars fan. I, yeah, I mean, you know, I'm a huge pop culture fan. I was, I, you know, inhaled Hollywood pop culture and comic books and TV shows growing up, video games. You know, I was a shy, dorky, fat kid. And, and I think, I guess I really love the Star Wars universe. The movies are actually okay, but the, the universe is just so rich and imaginative. And, you know, these, these archetypal stories that George Lucas drew from. And there's also these Sufi spiritual lessons, right? You know, the one of the great Sufis of all time is Yoda, Sheikh Yoda. (laughs) (laughs) Right. 
You're didn't know you were going there, but yeah, sure, yeah. sure, sure. Yeah. Um, fast yes. or fast not. There is no try. <laughs> oh, that's good fun. You're also, you know, you grew up, you and I both grew up without having representation on the big screen. You know, our kids, this next generation and the changes in pop culture have really shifted uh, to where there's more of a, I think, a, an acceptance and an audience and... Uh, that shift is changing, I think, the way that we think about who is an American. D- do you see a backlash happening to that? Do you see a backlash happening to the diversifying um, cultural icons that our kids get to look up to? Look at the 1619 Project. Look at the book bans in Texas. <laughs> look at the Stop Woke Act in Florida. Look at, uh, apparently the Hollywood Reporter has some, uh, an article on this, how like some execs are talking about, oh, we have to be quote unquote woke now, which basically just means, oh, look, more brown and black people are actually getting starring roles, right? So to answer your question, that white rage and that white lash has been a constant in American history. And if you still look at the numbers, white men are still crushing it in Hollywood, right? If you look at the power of the gatekeepers, the producers, the studio heads, the directors, the leading roles... All we're seeing now is a bit more opportunity where uh, a bunch of us finally get to be more than the the antagonist or the footnote or the sidekick. We get to be co-protagonists. And you see that audiences don't care. It makes money. Like, so you, what you're seeing is going to be the, the, the tension between the color green and the color white. Because at the end of the day, the data shows that diversity leads to higher ticket sales, higher TV ratings, uh, access to more global market, right? But you're seeing in America that more and more people of color getting these roles and more women getting these roles is leading to the cultural backlash where apparently we are, quote unquote, replacing them. But I think when it comes to culture, this is where I think the right wing in this country, which is becoming more and more extreme, has kind of uh, doesn't have it doesn't have the strength in the culture wars, which is why they're so when I, when, it, when it comes to like Hollywood and TV and movies. Right. Um, this is where I think where there's a big opening for us to push forward and show, like you said, your generation, uh, your kids' generation of Americans that, look, we too can be heroes. Because you and I didn't have that. My no, kid has no. Kamala Khan as Miss Marvel. Right, right. My kid has Hassan Minaj. And my kid has Mindy Kaling. <laughs> my kid has a Netflix show. Like, this is huge. We yeah. joke about it. But, yeah. you know, even me and, like, uh, I was talking to another host. We're like, 15 years ago, would NPR have devoted an hour where uh, a guest would be a brown Muslim guy and the host would be a black man. And I'm like, let me think about it. Probably not. And that was just 15 years ago in America. So it's going to give people a lot of tension and a lot of economic anxiety, but I don't think they could stop this train. My conversation with playwright, commentator, and author Wajahid Ali. That's all for this week's episode. If you missed any portion of the program, head over to Interfaith Radio to stream the conversation and check out the show notes. This week's show was produced by Kevin McCarthy. A special thanks to our founder, Sister Maureen Fiedler, and MC Yogi for our theme music. I'm your host and executive producer, Umbreen Khan. Wherever you are, friends, I hope you are safe. I hope you are well, and I hope you stay connected. I'll see you next week.